in the mental health field too often. We've made it seem as if it's just in your head. Just in your head. The landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We can have a profit-driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Just In Your Head. I'm Max Golding, LMFT. We've got Harriet. Who are you? Here I am. I'm Harriet Fraud, mental health counselor, or you want to call me my by title, Dr. Harriet Fraud, hypnotherapist, mental health counselor, radical activist, <laughs> and co-partner on this wonderful podcast. So before we start, uh, we actually forgot to do this, I think, the last two episodes in the beginning. So just a quick shout out to our patrons first winter, Sarah Turner, Rebecca Johns, Justin Harper, and Bandila Msimanga. And of course, Liam, for all the help with editing and social media. Um, so today, we're going to be talking with somebody I'm really excited to hear from. Uh, her name is Jennifer White, and she's one of the founders of the Critical Suicidology Network. It's a growing international network of scholars interested in exploring alternatives to biomedical approaches to suicide prevention. And Critical Suicidology brings together people with lived experience, mental health professionals, researchers, and activists to rethink what it means to study suicide and enact practices of suicide prevention. By the way, I'm reading from uh, a Mad in America article, which we'll link. Um, they have such a, a beautiful intro leading up to her. Um, and oh, so also she's a professor in the School of Child and Youth Care at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada. And she's practiced as a counselor, educator, researcher, and advocate, and has served uh, seven years as the director of the Suicide Prevention Center in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of British Columbia. So all kinds of other things we could say about her, but um, well, just good. actually, <laughs> well, just to, we'll just get into it more, just like hear from, from what she actually has to say. Um, but it's exciting for us, um, uh, well, well, I mean, for me, I've I've worked with a fair amount of uh, I don't know suicidal people, um, and so I I really personally enjoy this topic. Um, but just our first question, because like in that that first lead up, founder one of the founders of the Critical Suicidology Network. Like, what is critical suicidology, Jennifer? What does that phrase mean? Thanks, Max, for that question, and uh, thank you, both of you, for having me this morning. And I think that's a great place to begin. Um, and one of the things I can say about critical suicidology or critical suicide studies is it attempts to rethink what we think we know about what suicide is. Um, and I think part of the critique of the dominant approach to suicidology and suicide prevention um, is that it tends to frame suicide in a very narrow um, psychological framework that equates or conflates suicide with mental illness. And so I think the, the number of scholars that have been drawn to the Critical Suicide Studies Network and practitioners, and as you say, those with lived experience, are interested um, in broadening how we think about it in ways that contextualize distress, that don't just locate problems in persons, um, but recognize a suicide as a response mm -hmm. often to injustice, inclusion, you know, exclusion, um, mm -hmm. hate, oppression, and all of the other kinds of forms of violence that many people experience. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So it's a really expansive... It, it kind of, well, the theme of our podcast, it's not just in your head, is we're kind of, we're trying to get that impression across that um, that the sort of medical and symptom-based model of just looking at quote-unquote mental illness is just generally insufficient because there's so much more going on in the world and in people's lives. So it sounds like critical suicidology is trying to apply that kind of concept to just the phenomenon of suicidology, you know, suicidal ideation, suicidal you know, completions and acts. Is that right? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of resonance with the kinds of things that you've been exploring on your podcast. And so this individualizing, pathologizing, medicalizing way of thinking mm -hmm. about suicide mm -hmm. is something that we've inherited, but it's not required. Mm -hmm. It's not natural um, or it's not inevitable. And I think what we want to mm -hmm. show is that there are other ways of framing suicide, mm -hmm. that that invites other ways of responding. And just by way to show the instability of the meaning of suicide through 
throughout history, it's meant many different things. Um, there's been times in history where it's been viewed as a sin. Um, there's been times in history where it's been viewed as a crime. There's been times in places um, throughout the world where it was considered honorable to die by suicide under certain conditions. And we're in this era now where we've taken it for granted that it's an illness and we frame it as a mental health problem. And, and so just opening up that space to show, well, no, that that isn't necessarily inherent to the act of suicide to call it an illness, that there's other ways mm. of thinking about it. And that then creates possibilities for a, a diverse set of responses, I think. Yeah, I think um, it's very important because part of what's happened in the medical field and in the psychology field, psychology fields, is an evasion of political responsibility by trying to pinpoint people's upsets as biological chemical imbalances or something else completely apart from the social network in which they are woven. And one of the things this show is trying to do is recontextualize psychology with the rest of life that people endure. Mm -hmm. And your studies are another wonderful example of doing so. So I'm really glad you're doing it. Yeah, and I think a lot of the work um, here in Canada, and I should say um, I'm located here on the traditional unceded territory of the Lekwungen people, and so making visible my status as a settler, a European settler to these lands that has displaced Indigenous people is an important acknowledgement because many Indigenous uh, people in Canada have disproportionately high rates of suicide relative mm -hmm. to the general population. And I think this provides a good example to show the effect effects of colonization and the violence that's been done to displace Indigenous people, to disconnect them from their cultural teachings. Sometimes their children were apprehended um, and, and tremendous kind of disavowal of Indigenous sovereignty. And so these are some of the ways that I've been working with my Indigenous colleagues here in Canada to make those things visible when framing um, distress um, and the, the possibility for responding in a different way also requires a political response that engages with social injustice. Yeah, it's like the work yeah. of Paulo Freire in education and others who say this is a response in part to disempowerment. Mm -hmm. And that's so of Native Americans, the dispossessed, mm -hmm. and African Americans, as Fanon talks about that there is psychological damage, which is not some kind of isolated medical development, but a result of battery, mm -hmm. a battery mm -hmm. in the colonial frame. Exactly, and that's why contextualizing distress and seeing suicide as a response, as opposed to a symptom or a pathology, is, is an important move to make. And um, I think um, that the engagement um, of folks who want to see a different world that's possible for all of us to flourish and have access to equitable resources is, is a way of thinking about suicide prevention that's quite different from a risk assessment or um, mm -hmm. a, a narrow treatment approach. But I always like to say in these opportunities is that we're not saying let's not have treatment opportunities or let's not make sure high-quality mental health care is available for people. That's important. But as you said at the mm -hmm. beginning, um, Max, it's just insufficient on its own. Um, but Go ahead, Max. Just, just, I'm curious, like, you know, how did you get interested? It seems like you spent a lot, I mean, at least a decade or something, I don't know, a while on this. Like, how did you get interested in this work? I mean, suicidology specifically, and then how did you shift from you know, however that's been framed in the mainstream psychology world into this more critical framework? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I um, sometimes have to think about where I begin the story mm -hmm. because I, I remember working as a very um, young, naive, um, inexperienced child and youth care practitioner when I began my career, um, where we were working in a residential facility for children who had multiple um, traumas and um, multiple co-occurring um, mental health disorders. And there was a suicide in the, in the institutional setting um, where I worked. And I remember that the fallout from that was there was all these procedures 
procedures that were instituted that had to do with making sure that, you know, students, or not students, but the young people we were working with didn't have access to belts or things that they could hang mm-hmm. themselves with. And there was a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. that was required about doing constant checks. And so the move was very mm-hmm. much procedural. And I didn't think about it at the time. And I kind of went away in my career and then learned more about how to do suicide risk assessments and the kinds of questions to ask and the importance Mm -hmm. of figuring out whether people were at low, moderate or high risk and tailoring Mm -hmm. the treatments to map onto these things. So I was kind of carrying on both as a counselor um, and as a researcher working with those very mainstream ideas but then became kind of disenchanted with them because of the ways in which they obscured these political relationships. They obscured the ethics of the work. They Mm. tended to individualize people's problems. And then I learned that there were other scholars, um, Ian Marsh Mm. being one of them, if you haven't read his book on suicide. He takes a Foucauldian analysis of suicide. That's a tremendous piece of work and an important contribution. Um, And then there was more and more of us that started to show up at these kind of mainstream conferences to say, let's think about an alternative. Let's think what else might be possible because what we've been doing clearly isn't working. (laughs) So it was sort of a disenchantment um, with what we were doing and then finding other theoretical resources, other ways of thinking about the work, other um, engagements uh, with people's lived experience that helped me to think, yeah, there's a community of solidarity here that we can link to, um, to think about other possibilities for how we might respond. You know, that I, I'm really intrigued by this and by your idea of particularly I'm involved in the United States, but how suicidality is developing in the thoughts of Americans and how many more people are committing suicide and wondering how they compare with their brothers and sisters in Canada or other developed countries, Hmm. whether the U.S. suicide rate jumps with the disintegration of our social fabric. Yeah, which is, of course, what Durkheim was kind of basing his whole um, sociological theory on, was studying suicide patterns. And I'm not a sociologist, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but what I can say is that suicide rates certainly fluctuate over time and that there are trend lines to pay attention to. And depending on what period of time you look at, we can see either an overall decline. So if you look back, say, from 1990 to the present, we might see an overall decline among many European and North American countries in terms of suicide rates. If you were to look back um, at the last two decades, for example, in the United States, there's been an increase um, over time. But in 2019, I just looked up this morning, according to the latest data from CDC, there has been a significant decrease between 2019 and 2018. So it does vary. And I think it's important to take a long view of these things and to not make judgments based on year-to-year fluctuations. Um, But the one thing I would say that I do know to be true about uh, suicides in, in the United States is the Um, disproportionate number of people dying by suicide with firearms. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very profound when you compare that to other countries where the the method of suicide um, makes a difference in terms of how many people die because that's a very lethal method. Um, And so that is one thing I think that's noteworthy about your particular context there. And I think the other thing is we can't make sense of any one suicide by having singular theories or singular stories about what it means. And I think this is part of it. We do need to contextualize it and know it's a complex phenomenon that's affected by our individual histories, our individual psychology and neurobiology, our families, our cultural context, the societies that we live in. Um, And the way we speak about suicide, I think, is very stigmatizing. And so it gets in the way of people even asking for help um, Mm. because there's sometimes a, a sense of shame or sometimes, I think, also, people fear um, losing their autonomy or being put in hospital against their will. Um, and these are some things that I think those with lived experience of suicide have really helped us to understand. 
um, mm-hmm. is that there's concerns about the response where there's a tremendous amount of surveillance. Um, there's a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of um, fear of being coerced into a treatment in a hospital that you don't want. And so I think we really need to broaden our view about who whose knowledge we're going to mobilize when we think about the response as well. I think that's an important contribution from those with lived experience. I think so too. And I, I do note that in the book, The Spirit Level by Wilkinson and Pickett, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they note suicide as one of the markers of social inequality and pain. And I wondered if you see that as a marker as well. Yes, and I think that this really links nicely to the social determinants of mental health and that we know that when people don't have access to jobs or housing or secure employment or that they, um, you know, are not able to um, get access to the same resources as others, that we know that this has a negative impact and corrosive impact on people's health and well-being. Um, And so this whole concept of deaths of despair and situating suicide in context of socioeconomic deprivation and and economic hardship, I think these are are things that we need to bring into the framework as opposed to just thinking about it in psychological terms. So that's an important move I think we need to make. I'm curious about in Canada, whether it's the same there as it it is here and that, you know, there's been this huge shift in the last, um, I don't know, few decades in this um, almost almost like an abandonment of say like psychoanalytic and and client you know Rogerian and all, you know all of the sort of um, the older styles of like psychotherapy and just you know approaches of mental health and a shift toward more like behavioral cognitive behavioral um, and I, I so I guess first is it the same in Canada or do you guys have more of like a diversity and I guess second what do you see how do you see the relationship to this more a more behavioral and almost like mechanized sort of um, approach to addressing suicide generally? I mean, is it, is it well, I think net positive, we, net negative? Yeah, and any- I think we do. Um, we are acting under the same dominant influence of evidence-based practice that you would be right. there. And okay. I think the kinds of um, therapeutic modalities that come out very strong, um, according to those kinds of systematic reviews, are DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, mm-hmm. and cognitive behavior therapy. Um, yeah. But I think, again, without a critique of what counts as evidence or what without a critique of saying, well, how are these studies... Um, you know, demonstrating that these um, are superior, who who are um, who's excluded from the studies, how's evidence being defined? It's a very narrow um, mm-hmm. kind of way of thinking about it. And so, right there, you start mm-hmm. getting into the politics of evidence, <laughs> um, yeah, which I yeah. think is important. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to show that there's contestation about these things. Um, well, and some of those therapies yeah, are very yeah. amenable to that kind of quantification and. Um, targets and measuring behaviors and others are less yeah, yeah. well and I you know in my clinical training site for like five years I had a lot of you know I had like a weekly dbt supervision you know I have, I have a lot of experience with dbt I'm not like officially certified it's like really hard to get like officially certified um but I, so I've been a, a big fan of it but I you know it is um I think of it more as like a principle-based versus like a sort of manualized uh, kind mm-hmm. of treatment model but it is it's in my understanding is Mar- when Marsha Linehan sort of developed it in the eighties, she was seeing that there was this shift toward a sort of behaviorist. Um, like she says herself that she called it dialectical behavioral therapy because she knew that if she called it what she wanted to call it, which was going to have something that sounded more spiritual or like mindfulness based, mm-hmm. that it wouldn't it wouldn't get attention. She couldn't sell books and she couldn't she couldn't really create a new modality. So she herself was sort of recognizing she had to sort of play the game of how the system wants to frame mental health in order to basically put mindfulness because her whole thing is it's, I mean, it's, she wanted to basically just put like Zen Buddhism into mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I guess so, cause I've always thought of, and this is a little bit of a tangent, I guess, but just I, I've, I've always thought of DBT since really getting to know it as um, Marsha Linehan, you know, someone with a lot of lived experience, right? She mm-hmm. had like really pervasive chronic suicidality problems who tried to subversively, almost like hijack the now sort of behaviorized, medicalized mental health system into creating a, a behaviorally um, permissible treatment. But e- even then, I guess all that said, as much, you know, I have fondness of DBT and I'm also critical of it. It, it also is a very depoliticized uh, 
Mm-hmm. framework right it doesn't it doesn't look so much at the context even you know biosocial theory looks at you know cr- uh, pervasive invalidating environment and then there's like the bi- there's some biological components but if you have an invalidating social environment which could be sexism racism mm-hmm. you know i don't know colonialism you could maybe frame it that way but dbt never actually front loads any of that into the conversation it is actually focusing on symptoms and everything so i don't i don't know this is a, a little bit of a selfish rant because I like DBT, but I, I'm just curious from from the critical suicidology perspective, do you have any thoughts on DBT in that general framework? Well, I agree with you. I mean, I think that there's lots of evidence that it works for lots of folks. And so we would never want mm-hmm. to say, well, if that's the therapy you're receiving and it's helping you and it's helping you in the ways that you're seeking help, then great. I think what we're saying is let's not make that the only available treatment mm-hmm. for people. And so it's interesting what you're saying about Marshall Linehan's efforts were originally probably meant to be quite radical, to be disruptive. And it also shows about the co-opting that goes on (laughs) when we start manualizing things and saying it's standardized, everybody gets this. Mm -hmm. And I think the critique often of DBT or CBT is, again, it locates the problem in persons and that they become responsible Mm -hmm. for becoming better self-regulators, managing Mm -hmm. their emotions, tolerating distress, and again, obscuring from view all of these um, contextual features that we've been talking about, leaving them untouched. And so the example of a queer youth or a trans youth who's experiencing um, hostility, hate, bullying, um, and if they're being told these are strategies for, you know, self-regulation and distress tolerance, while these other things remain untouched, that doesn't seem just, right? So it's that kind of thing of like who was being expected to accommodate, um, and Vicki Reynolds calls this, we don't want to be helping people to accommodate to lives of hell, right, by teaching them better Mm -hmm. coping strategies. There's something that needs to be um, resisted or disrupted um, in those those oppressive forces. So I think that's an important um, kind of thing to be thinking about as well. I do too. And I think it's also, it allows the client to understand that there's ways to fight back against the things that drive a person to suicide, Mm -hmm. that if you feel that your life isn't wanted by either your parents or the society at large, you can form a rebellion against those forces that cooperate in making you feel like you're not worth living. Yeah, that doesn't require you to kill yourself to enact the rebellion. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You can become... You can discover your own agency in stopping the problem, which CBT and DBT doesn't do. If you look at what's, what is showing you that your life has no worth mm-hmm. and realize that it's not only your folks or whatever, mm-hmm. it's racism or it's classism or whatever, mm-hmm. you can become an agent of change rather than just a sufferer from the effects of being devalued. And and then I, yeah, I agree with you, Harriet. And I think, too, I'm, I'm a big fan of narrative therapy that situates problems outside mm-hmm. of people and enables people to take a stand against things that are um, not of their things that are they're up against that are not of their own making and so again it historicizes and contextualizes and asks questions about you know what does it say about the world that we're living in that this kind of um, experience is being less valued than another and it helps people to see that they're not alone and isolated but this is part of a broader um, historical historical and cultural um, way of thinking about problems and the way that it does get individualized how much do you think that legal liabilities get in the way of us uh, conceptualizing and approaching suicide? Like, meaning, uh, I guess to give, well, maybe for listeners that aren't aware, like, so if 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 our, one of our clients starts to, if once we start to detect that there is some suicide risk, there's a sort of set of protocols that we're supposed to move toward to prevent them from committing suicide, which can which can in some cases mean, like, calling authorities or something, or I don't know if the laws are the same in Canada or is here, but in the U S at least, yeah. um, you know, if, if, if some, if we find out somebody has a plan or they're really close to a plan or whatever, we have to kind of start in our tracks and just zoom in on that and 
you know, like you're not supposed to go existential. You're not supposed, you're just supposed to make sure that they don't kill themselves. And I guess I'm not, I'm not trying to say on air, like I'm opposed to that. People should just kill themselves. But there, there's a liability piece where like, this has never happened to me. And I don't think it happens all that often, but there is a sort of um, hovering, looming um, reality above all clinicians, which is that if, if, a, if somebody does actually kill themselves and if their family or somebody decides that it's your fault because you didn't prevent it, they can sue you and you could like lose your license, you could mm. get fined or whatever. Um, and because I think from a more existential maybe kind of perspective, you could say like, well, people are sort of allowed to kill themselves. Like they might just, like, they might just kill themselves. Um, and it's not like the fault of a clinician or whatever. But how much do you think that that influences how we deal with the, this in the room and how we talk about it since there's actually like legal consequences mm-hmm. for not approaching it in the, for mm-hmm. us to not be like superheroes, I guess, for people kind of. Right. No, I think it's a, it's a huge issue. And I think it's very consequential in terms of the kind of care people receive. So for example, I've just been doing a study with um, counselors here um, who are working in a outpatient mental health treatment setting with young people. Um, And this very issue came up quite a bit about, um, you know, uh, fear of being blamed, um, liability concerns. And as you say, Max, the minute suicide enters the conversation, it's almost as if all that Mm -hmm. relational work and effort to build a strong alliance kind of gets put to the side Mm -hmm. and out comes the figurative risk assessment form and there's kind of tickable boxes. It's a box mentality that takes over and the anxiety of the clinician is heightened thinking I'm going to be blamed or I'm responsible for keeping this person alive. And then all of the things um, that we know can be the most helpful um, kind of become compromised because then now distance is introduced into the relationship. So um, Mm -hmm. some of those protocols and um, procedures can be experienced as quite dehumanizing. And there also, um, we had a counselor, this was a qualitative study, she, she told a story where the client themselves saying, oh, do we have to go through that? Can't we just skip that part and go to the helpful part? You know, like yeah. they know they've been primed. They've been on the receiving end of those same risk assessment questions. Often many times they could probably mm-hmm. recite them from heart. Um, mm-hmm. And they're, they're what I've called in other places kind of deadening conversations. Yeah. They're not fresh. Mm-hmm. They don't open up possibility for thinking anew. They don't, mm-hmm. um, they're, there's no energy or movement in them. They're just a series of yes, no. And the clinicians themselves say, yes, they know that their paperwork has to be in order. There's this kind of hypervigilance. And um, so I think it's um, one of the things that I took away from this recent study was we're not saying that those things should be thrown out or that we don't have an obligation to adhere to the institutional requirements, but that there's another level of practice that can be going on alongside um, where people are, you know, doing what's required for the standard of care, but also staying connected and staying um, close to the to the person's story um, so that it isn't just an either or but somehow what I've called like a doubled practice that they can be happening together so it doesn't get reduced to this procedural way of working yeah you know when when I have a client one of the things I tell them initially is that our communications are confidential but if you have a specific plan to kill yourself and you tell me about it, I'm required by law to report that. Mm-hmm. Just so you know, and I'm candid with you. That would be the exception. Mm-hmm. And and I never did have a client. I've been in practice 46 years. I never had a client kill him or her themselves. Mm-hmm. Never did. Mm-hmm. But I've suicidal ideation is actually part of a lot of normal people where you just think, I can't take this anymore. I'm checking out. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that you're specifically planning. It just means that you've had more than you can bear at that time. And there has to be some differentiation. And when people encounter a a listening presence that's curious and calm and wanting to know Mm -hmm. more and not like 
kind of hitting the um, hyperactive emergency button right away. There's a possibility for the person to explore that. And we know that many people say the very thing that enabled me to go on living was knowing I had this suicide plan in my back pocket. Like it's this paradoxical thing. It says, don't take that away from me. Like don't disallow Mm -hmm. me from having this thought or say, you know, you're not allowed to speak that way here because I'm going to then activate this this emergency response. And it really is up to us because of a relationship we've established to feel and know the intention of the client. I mean, I once had a woman who every time her session was over, she'd say, I think I'll kill myself. And I'd say, well, we'll talk about it next week. Mm -hmm. No, she was just saying that because she wanted me to continue to be engaged with her. Uh But on paper, it was callous of me. In the context of our relationship, it really wasn't. Uh Uh It's a good example. Yeah. So I had a, a professor in therapist school who had once said, that she believes that people have a right to kill themselves. That they, like it's a sort of autonomy thing, mm-hmm. like that it's their life. Like they can, if they want to. Um, and I, they'd always stood out to me because she was just very, I thought she was very bold in saying that. Like she was saying it, I think also to be kind of disruptive to say like, look, I know we have all these, you know, I've been in practice forever and I know we have all these rules and stuff, but this is just my personal philosophy. And I, I, I really dwelled on that for a while. And then once I, you know, I went into the the clinic where I was at um, working with, you know, a fair amount, it wasn't like all my clients were suicidal, but like fair amount of like, you know, cut, cutting, you know, parasuicidality and, and um, suicidal attempts and stuff and hospitalizations with fair amount of teenagers and actually found that the more real I was with them, like, like the ones yeah. um, that I can think of like in the beginning, with, you know, if they came in and already knew from the intake, like there were attempts and stuff that if I said something like, look, I don't actually, this is going to sound really weird maybe, but like, I don't really care necessarily whether or not you kill yourself. (laughs) I don't, first of all, I don't really know you. So I'm not going to pretend like we're Mm -hmm. best friends and I like really care. So first of all, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to be fake like that. Right. It's, you can kind of do what you want with your life. So me even saying this, I, I, have, I have like a fear as I'm verbalizing this on like a podcast that like yeah. somebody could say like, I'm going to go to your licensing board or something. Yeah. But the thing is, but I think in context though, in the context, the reason I was kind of saying this, so I guess it's sort of strategic, but it's also relational is to say that, you know, again, it is your right. And, and, and then explaining, but you know, also, but here's the legal piece, right? If, if this happens and I have to like trigger this response and everything, and I have to start acting like a robot, which isn't because I want to, it's because there's like rules that I don't even necessarily agree with. Um, although I don't really know what the better alternative is, but just having this like really authentic sort of meta conversation about Mm -hmm. suicide and death and all of that I found, especially with teens and teens are, teens are unique in that they, they have really strong bullshit detectors, so I think it, it's more helpful for them when someone is kind of leveling with them. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I do, but I do think that it also sort of um, hastened the rapport building process. And they were like, "Oh, this person, this is like the only person in the system who isn't bullshitting me and isn't just going down a checklist." Mm-hmm. And they're just saying, and they're actually saying that I can kill myself if I want to. And none of them ever did kill themselves. So I mean, looking back, I almost think starting with this almost existential um, and slightly irreverent mode saying, you know, mm-hmm. let's just put it on the table, um, actually started the conversation in a, in a healthier way. Um, and then followed by, as we, as we did build a rapport and if we did talk about suicide, me just saying authentically, like I would personally, like I would, I would be very much negatively impacted if you killed yourself just cause I care about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's not because I don't care what the legal or ethical piece is. Like I would miss you cause I think you're a cool person. Um, and I think that, you know, that means something as well. Once you actually have the relationship for someone to say like, oh, well, this person cares about me, so they don't want me to kill myself. It's just, well, it's I different. Think- it's different than that mechanical checklist yes. in method that you were speaking of. Well, and I think it's so striking, even when you say, I feel afraid, even verbalizing it out loud, like how yeah. we've become mm-hmm. so afraid to speak <laughs> about suicide in certain ways, right? Like that we've inherited this view that there's only mm-hmm. one way to speak about it. And it must mean that we're, you know, always, Always, um, kind of controlling it and containing it. But to be open to learning about another's despair doesn't mm. mean we're condoning 
that they go mm. off and kill themselves. And presumably by coming to see you yeah. for help, there's still a part of them that's curious about whether that's an option that they want to pursue or not and whether life is worth living. And then to say, well, mm. I'm a person you can have that conversation with. I, I you know, I can. Yeah. And it's also true that people have killed themselves throughout human history. Mm-hmm. People have killed themselves right. in hospital settings uh, where mm. in maximum security kind of context. So it is true to a point that we can't control people um, you know, I right. guess we could lock everybody up and say that's suicide prevention, but most of us yeah. would have an ethical <laughs> problem with that, right? Like that's we would say, point. we'll bring the rates down huh. to zero, but we would be ethically concerned about that as an intervention. So um, yeah. I think I think it is important point. to also make the distinction between um, being responsible for providing quality care to someone and being responsible for another person's life. Um, And I think that that's an important distinction here as well. Because sometimes I think we mistakenly think I'm the one that needs to keep you alive. Um, And I think we are responsible for creating a possibility for someone to explore those questions and to provide the best quality care that we can. And in cases where it does seem like there's an imminent suicide and that we might need to invoke those kinds of emergency responses, I think in the rare case, those are things that we could, we could agree it's probably worthwhile. But for the large majority of cases, I think it is hanging in there with that conversation and not letting your own anxiety get the better of you um, so that you then now are not being helpful anymore that's right because then you're thinking only of yourself and you've left the person and abandoned them you know i have a colleague who's a psychiatrist and um he used to work with uh be a forensic psychiatrist working with recently released offenders and when he was in his office once a patient came in and pointed a gun at him And his first thought was, oh, shit, you know, I'm going to die. But then he said to the guy, you must be feeling really vulnerable to take that out. How are Mm. you feeling? And Mm. they started talking, and the guy put the gun away, and they had a session. Mm. Because he stopped thinking, oh, my God, what about me? Mm -hmm. And he went out to this troubled person and helped him. Mm -hmm. And that was an extreme example, but... If what we're trained to do is protect ourselves and our license above all and above any question, then we abandon the client in trouble. That's we right. We don't listen anymore. And I yeah. think that was another thing that came out of our findings in this small qualitative study is that sometimes mm-hmm. those protocols and requirements center the interests of the organization um, right. and the practitioner over the client. And I don't think that that's what they're meant to do. I think that they're... Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully there as loose guides that can be helpful to people as they're thinking about engaging with people mm-hmm. who are thinking about suicide. But yes, this tick box mentality, I think, is antithetical to, to the kind of helping that we're talking about. Yeah, I think so, too, because one of the reasons, first of all, suicide is very self-centered. You, well, all real depression is very self-centered. And sometimes I say, isn't there, you're a political person, isn't there someone else you think is more worthy of being dead than you? Hmm. They laugh. Hmm. Hmm. And they, you know, because a lot of people who come to see me have professed left politics. And so, of course, their hit list would be much bigger than themselves, who are very much an activist. But it hmm. makes them giggle. Hmm. Because they're aware then of the self-centeredness of taking your own life mm. rather than saying my, my life could be worth something. Mm. Look at these other lives that I condemn. Why am I taking mine? Mm. I like, I like the, the sort of disruptive irreverence of it just from like, I don't know, because I have like DBT brain a lot. So I like the, the way that it just probably really disrupts the, I don't know, the cognitive process or whatever there. It does, um, Google. But I, I also, I wanted, so it's like a, Zooming out again, kind of, because we what you've touched on, Jennifer, is this. Um, so there's protecting. Well, you both said now, like it's there's protecting the individual clinician, and then there's protecting an organization if you're in a sort of clinic or hospital yes. or whatever. But I also wonder, just culturally, like our views of death, like how that maybe impacts our views, because you could call it countertransference from a, a therapist side, 
of like, oh no, death, suicide, you know, there's blood and guts or something or what, you know, I don't know, whatever you're, if you have a trauma history that, that has to do either with suicidality or with um, just death, people dying or whatever. But like, what, you know, if we could look at two totally separate cultures, I've never looked at studies on this, but like, say in the Western, like, if we just think of the way we treat death generally, like in the West, um, where like someone dies and then you like call the emergency people, they like drag them, they like cover them up, they drag them somewhere, somebody go like, like fills them full of chemicals and then you do yeah. this like funeral thing and it's like fake and then everyone dresses up and then, but they they don't, they never talk to each other normally and then they like avoid each other after and they cry and they get drunk and then they like go home and they're like traumatized or whatever, um, where there's like cultures where it's like everyone hangs out with the body and like talks, you know, there's a, a sort of spiritual thing. And then you, you go and you actually bury the body together or you do whatever you do. And, and there's, um, you know, so what, what would be our response in a professional clinical realm if we had just a different, I think, cultural relationship to death generally, like as just whether it's suicide or, or just death, right? Like someone dying, mm -hmm. like they can die from, from anything, but you know, suicide is just another way of dying, right? Um, we might we might attribute more meaning to it as it's like more dark because it's like the person took they like murdered themselves or something, right? Um, but or you could just view it as I don't know something else. They they were trying to alleviate alleviate a, a level of suffering that there was no other option available to them. Um, but if you just had a more maybe desensitized or accepting view of death, I wonder if we would just if we if we would have less anxiety when it comes into the room, does that does that make sense? Or has, have you studied that at all, Jennifer? Well, I haven't. Like, no, I have not studied that specifically. But I know that there's a lot of really interesting work um, in the area of suicide bereavement that kind of resonates with huh. what you're saying, which is grief psychology is also tending to be drawing from a very individualizing, um, mm. pathologizing framework where often the mm. frame is, you know, you need to get over it and you need to let go of the person who's died and you need to move on. And I think there's other ways of thinking about bereavement that enable one to stay connected to the person who's died. So again, a more relational possibility um, that isn't about severing ties but staying connected and there's lots of ways that people do this in the in the kind of grief work that they're doing where they're trying to um, honor the person who's died even if it's by suicide so not mm -hmm. seeing them as only their suicidal act but they're more than that so there's that piece mm -hmm. of it um, but mm -hmm. I also think um what you're what you're pointing to is there's so many different ways we can make meaning of suicide and death um, and already we have categories like medically assisted dying or medically mm -hmm. assisted suicide or euthanasia that mm -hmm. people seem to feel less queasy about than mm -hmm. suicide right so we already mm -hmm. have categories <laughs> that mm -hmm. we put frameworks mm -hmm. around and that we say well in this case we can justify it because someone's at the end of their life or they're experiencing mm -hmm. tremendous suffering and so we don't feel as many ethical qualms about them taking their own life. Um, and so I think these point to the diversity of ways that we think about death and the ways that we shape meaning through you know, how we talk about them. Um, and I think we need to have more descriptions available to us for thinking about suicide and death in general. Um, mm -hmm. that, that isn't just necessarily this kind of Western notion, as you say, kind of we're disconnected from death in many ways mm -hmm. um, and, and don't necessarily see it as, um, you know, a part of life because it is. I mean, right. death is a part of life. Right. A vital so, part. <laughs> that death, death, yeah. Well, death and taxes, right? Yes, it's death and taxes, the exactly. two inevitable, the only sure things that are to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah but people, I guess people think they can evade both. Yeah. They're successful on the tax uh, angle. Offshore accounts and rich, immortality. Right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the Trump syndrome. But mm -hmm. there is a, a way that Americans are afraid of all their physical processes mm. and hide them away. Our ties to nature. There's um, children. There was an there's a um, Inuit children's book called Annie, and the old one about a a little girl who loves her grandmother. And what the last thing that women do in the Inuit culture is they weave a tapestry, and when it's done, they know they're gone. Mm. They're done, and they're ready to die if they're very old and they feel it's time. They go out to an ice floe and lie down and die. And so this little girl who wanted her grandma to stay undid the weaving at night 
at least part of it so her grandmother would stay alive. And her grandmother says, no, I have lived and this is my goodbye and I need to have this right. We need to be able to go when I'm ready. Mm -hmm. We'll try to change this. This is part of me and this is part of the world. Mm -hmm. And the little girl accepts it. So it's a whole different approach. Mm -hmm. And staying connected with one's ancestors is a big part of that cultural tradition where those... Um, relationships might not be physically present anymore, but strong spiritually still connected mm-hmm. to those who've gone before. And emotionally, we all, if I have found in myself and in my clients, because I'm old enough that all my friends have dead parents, and um, I found that you miss the parent only if the person you were in that parent's eyes is something you want to keep. Mm. If the person that you were in their eyes is something you don't like, then you don't miss them at all. It's just a relief. Mm. There's a huge, there's a huge change of meaning depending on the uniqueness of who you are in the eyes of the person who died. Mm-hmm. And so, the death is so different depending on who died and what was the relationship. So, Jennifer, when you so when we talk about. Well, here, here's, here's, I'm going to turn you into my therapist for a quick second. So I, so I, I feel trapped sometimes. So you're going to have to help me, help me out of this. I feel trapped in that, um, whether as a clinician or maybe an activist or whatever, looking at something like suicide and uh, I guess, well, what I'm saying is trapped in the symptom mentality here. Okay. Here's what I mean. When we can zoom out and say, well, it's people's low wages or it's the history of colonialism or it's and we can, we can really start to look at this sort of socio-political factors but since in the mental health field we are i mean social workers play can play a macro role but typically in the more psychotherapy you know mental health professional world even if we conceptualize something like suicide as a sociological phenomenon that needs sociological conceptualization i feel trapped sometimes in that how am I supposed to actually treat, quote unquote, treat? Maybe that's just the whole, the framework is wrong, right? But how am I supposed to treat the suicidality if the whole, if the whole thing of what I do is I provide this like one-on-one service where I listen to people talk mm-hmm. and that, that, that can't change their wages. It can't change their housing security. It can't change, um, I don't know, the conditions of like a native reservation or of like federal policy about, things or like the criminal justice system, like, or, or, or immigration systems. It's like taking, you know, ripping families apart or whatever, um, or like gun laws. Right. Um, and so hopefully that makes sense and feeling trapped sometimes. And I'm like, well, I can kind of do all this activism on the side, but I can't really do it professionally. I can't do it in the room necessarily. Um, like I can maybe help this individual conceptualize things maybe as I do in a zoom out view, but, if, but that doesn't change the condition, you know, the situational conditions. So I don't mean to like impose like despair and hopelessness, but does that, I mean, does that resonate? And it, do you have within the critical suicidology network, since it seems like that you all are definitely pushing the boundaries of trying to reconceptualize things like suicide into a broader view, what's sort of the, um, I guess that the, what would the newer treatment model look like that's not so medicalized and individualized? Mm-hmm. When you frame that, it's very important to understand that we can't change the social conditions, but we can empower our clients to see them and feel that they have agency in changing the social conditions that impre- oppress them as well as the political conditions that oppress them. It's an empowerment. It's a liberation which we won't do ourselves, but we can communicate to our clients a sense of agency and hope that activates them on their own behalf. Well, and I think I agree, and and I think just to add to that is I think there's still a need for people to receive compassionate caring responses Mm -hmm. that support people who are suffering. I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that that's no longer relevant, but Mm -hmm. what I think we can do Mm -hmm. is in the way that we craft our questions, Mm -hmm. we help people to see that sometimes the things that they feel like failures about, or that they're not living up to the normative view of what counts as mental health 
is actually um, situated in a in a broad context that values certain lives over others and makes it difficult for them to get ahead, for example, because of structural racism or because of colonial histories. And so building a conversation that helps them to see themselves situated differently in relationship to the problem is a powerful intervention. Um, and they can also be helped to create lines of connection with other people, building community so that they're not so isolated. Um, mm -hmm. And I think, you know, again, coming back to narrative therapy practices that are, that are really very rooted in a post-structural kind of theoretical analysis, and it's very explicitly political work, um, is it really um, challenges these kind of narrow notions of mental health and helps people to take, you know, um, up a different position in relation to some of these normative frameworks so that they um, can see their suicide in some ways as a, as a protest or as a spirited refusal, as some have put mm -hmm. it, to live in these times, um, but that they no longer feel like that's, that's a blame, blame the victim kind of a situation, which some of our approaches do tend to do, locate the problems in persons by suggesting they're the ones that have to make all the changes. And so it's, it's a shift in how the problem is framed and then what you can build out from that, as Harriet says, is helping people make links to broader social movements so that they then are no longer isolated themselves as being so-called the, you know, the, the problem. Yeah. And in okay. Indigenous communities, we see a lot of this in terms of efforts towards um, resurgence and sovereignty and working mm -hmm. together as a community. Um, mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that some people don't experience what we might call feelings of hopelessness and depression, but the coming together um, as mm -hmm. a community to stand up for something that they believe in is, an, mm -hmm. is a suicide prevention move, in my view. It is. Right, yeah. right. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Well, it thank you for... Like joining yeah. the union is, in a sense... Right. Join with right. other people, you get a sense of collectivity. And really, I believe that the basis of mental health is connection. Mm -hmm. And you create connection as an antidote to death, yeah. which is very important. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Creating community and connection and relational possibilities with others, whether yeah. they're still alive or, or no longer here, I think are all possibilities for well, with you too. And, connection with you as well. Yeah. And 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 solidarity, you know, I think like the term gets thrown around a lot in like left kind of activist circles. But I don't think, you know, the last episode we did with a couple of labor organizers, mm -hmm. they were saying that um, you know, at least in the US, like like workers generally don't really know what solidarity feels like, like viscerally. They don't, um, just because the union movement has been kind of like, you know, it's been on like life support for like 50 years in the US, that it's really hard for like workers to understand like, yeah, your coworkers aren't just out to get you and aren't just trying to snitch on you to HR and aren't trying to like climb over you for a promotion. Yeah, your coworkers are willing to actually take action to make sure that the boss stops harassing you or that we can get a little bit more, you know, benefits or wages or whatever that in the US that's, that's pretty that's just not a, it's not a cultural norm for workers to just say like, yeah, my coworkers have my back. We're in solidarity. Mm -hmm. We're in a shared struggle, which we can actually overcome if, and only if we see each other as equals and if we work together to overcome. Um, and that, that actually makes me kind of wonder that the word solidarity, because I wanted to ask you earlier too, that the, the sort of racial and gender disparities. And again, I don't know if they're the same um, from Canada to the U S I'm sure there, there's some similarities, but from what I recall, from what I've read, rates of suicide, so suicide attempts, I think, from women tend to be higher. Suicide completions are much higher yeah. for men. Mm -hmm. um, and that tends to be, as you said, correlated with access to firearms. Mm -hmm. um, typically, maybe there's other, there's other factors there. But then there's also, when you look at rates across sort of ethnic and racial grouping, um, that I believe white males in the U.S. Well, there's there's this interesting. I don't think anyone's ever quite figured this out, but like white men have the highest and black women have the lowest suicide completion rates in the U.S. But I think that white men and Native American men in the U.S. are relatively similar. Mm -hmm. And I've just I've just always wondered. I mean, because I feel like you can only kind of speculate. And like my thing has been, well, white men have, have been taught for generations to be as anti solidarity as you can possibly be. Um, like that's just what our identities are, like are built on is like anti-solidarity black women 
I don't know. I mean, if I could, I could see there being a longer history of like, well, we, we have to have solidarity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Native Native American men, I don't, I don't, I don't quite know. I mean, I have different. I just, I would imagine that there's just more sort of intergenerational despair or something. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm just speculating. I mean, have you have you looked at those kinds of disparities and and have any sort of thoughts or theories on those? Well, I think there's a lot of paradoxes, right? As you say, yeah. there's, um, you know, high rates of suicide among white men, and that would be a, a group that we might say has the most privilege. But it's also right. the group who's been led to believe they have the most entitled <laughs> access mm-hmm. to the good life. Um, and so mm-hmm. this disconnect between what they've been led to believe is theirs for the taking and it's not becoming available. I think a lot of people, you know, who've done much more um, scholarly work on this. I mean, I'm just scratching a surface of a, an impression I'm, I'm building. So I, I think that's an important thing to, to, to look at. Um, and I, I think, as you say, um, the gender paradox is that many women experience much higher rates of depression and they engage in non-fatal suicidal behaviors. Um, so what's, what's that about and what's the difference there? And I think, again, sometimes we fall into the trap of um, creating these binaries between saying men are more serious or they're really going to get the job done and women are, you know, just gesturing or attention seeking. And that's problematic in its own way. Um, So I think we have to be careful about not, you know, framing certain things as more serious or more certain or, you know, um, I think there's been a lot of work that's done gender analyses of how we even think about suicide um, and and how they get framed up as, you know, suicidal gestures as somehow not not as important or and yet it's still an expression of distress. Um, mm-hmm. And it's still something I think we need to figure into our efforts to not just think about suicide rates or deaths by suicide, but also the number of people engaging in suicidal behavior. And I, I think too of uh, the LGBTQ community who has quite high rates of suicidal behaviors. And again, that's another example of the need to think about that in the context of the times of um, um heteronormativity and transphobia and transmisogyny and um, these these are ways that we've communicated to certain groups that your life is not worth living and I think that's the shift we need to make Mm -hmm. I also think if mental health is based around connection and emotional connection with other people as well as solidarity white men have the least of that in the United States where they farmed out their emotional connection to women, by and large, and women no longer accept the burden and leave. Women are 70% of the divorce initiators in this country. And so that men don't have those emotional skills and they've been deprived of them in childhood where it's not manly to cry or hold hands with another boy or hug or do a whole bunch of other things that women are allowed to do to connect with their friends, with each other, with their children, with relatives. Mm -hmm. And so that I think the lack of connection is so unhealthy mentally. Mm -hmm. And that's why that they would be, that's another reason in addition to the proximity of guns and gun culture, that they would Mm -hmm. be more vulnerable to suicide. Well, and I think you bring up this important point about really narrow notions of masculinity and that patriarchy Mm -hmm. doesn't serve a lot of men well either. Um, You know, I think all of these things have limited the ways that men, as you say, can express uh, the need to get help or how that help needs to Mm -hmm. look. Um, We put a lot Mm -hmm. of value on talking it out, which might not necessarily be what men would Mm -hmm. find most helpful when in despair. So, yeah, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. analysis that needs to be done there. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, for a lot of men, the connection, what makes it less shameful to have emotional need is you show it only in connection of sexual connection, Mm -hmm. only with your sex partner. And somehow it's more allowable. So if you don't have that kind of deep relationship with a sex partner, you don't have that emotional release either. Yeah. And I do think, well, and then then zooming out kind of further, this is, this is where sometimes it's just so big and it's like a, it's, it's stuff that you've, I've learned mainly from you, Harriet, but just the shifts in, um, you know, we'll, we'll throw around the term neoliberalism for this, but in more, um, 
to be more specific, it's like in, um, you know, as, as jobs became more within like sort of the, say the Imperial core in the U S um, the deindustrialization processes of like the majority of say factory jobs and manufacturing, you know, just anything that was like hands-on physical labor began to be more outsourced. And then, you know, this sort of like global capital phenomenon just sort of took on this monstrous size that, um, disconnection the the economic glue that held family i mean primarily i guess white families but just the economic glue that held uh people together to have like economic stability as that began to fall apart more and more for those who sort of were given the the sort of economic privilege um pedestal as that started falling apart and as you say also i think the you know the women's movement did kind of succeed in at least getting you know, at least like, you know, corporate feminism has done pretty well. Like the, you know, women do have like a, a ladder toward better economic standards mm-hmm. on average, a lot better than 50 years ago, even though you know, it's not, especially it's not totally, you know, and especially white women, it's like not, it's not totally equal. But yeah, so those are, those are some of those larger factors that again, it's, it would seem, I think if you're in the room and you're doing a suicide assessment or something with someone, you don't, you know, you're not going to bring up to like the older white guy, well, you got you know about neoliberalism, right, man? Like, you know, you know about you know about deindustrialization. De- you know how like your dad worked in a in a union job and then he didn't, and then your pension was lost, and now you're screwed. Well, that's why you want to kill yourself. Like, you wouldn't say that, but that actually is a factor. Like, that's a huge factor. You know, just the the actual economic changes over the last like half century. And I um and this is again, I shouldn't say trapped. I'm not actually hopeless. I just feel sometimes frustrated because I don't see a I don't see a, a, cl- a clinical solution. But once we understand these broader, um, the, the, the really big, like global factors on that scale, right? Like the way like global capital has like transformed in the last 50 years. And we say like, wow, so that has impacts on suicide rates mm-hmm. and like gender and racial disparities of suicide rates. Like to me, I go like, well, geez, why are we just talking about symptoms? Like that seems so right. silly, mm-hmm. right? Of course it does. And the, I just yeah. wanted to say that I've had several older male clients guys 50 and up to whom I've explained what's happened in the economy who are so relieved it's not their fault they're not losers and they're you know and they do have merit and they're some they're because a lot of suicide is also shame and punishment and so that if people feel like they are the victims of a an impersonal economic change based on capitalist profit. They don't have to feel like, oh my God, I thought I was a failure. Mm-hmm. And that changes a lot in terms of depression and suicidal suicidality. So it's not just that they heard some abstract lecture, but they see how it impacts their life and that it wasn't their fault is huge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, we're about at an hour. Jennifer, do you, um, do you have any kind of final, we're going to put some links in the, in the show description, but do you have any, um, whether it's like websites, articles, um, things that you could kind of plug for listeners to, to understand your work better or just some of the general concepts and, um, and ideas that you've been, uh, working on for the last several years? Yeah, thanks. And thanks for this conversation. It's been really rich and I've enjoyed very much listening to you and learning alongside you as we think together about all these complexities, but also the possibilities yeah. for doing things differently. And I think there's a, a tide that's shifting towards people saying, yeah, we, we need to do something different because what we've been doing for a very long time isn't sort of achieving what we thought we would. Right. But there has been a recent book um, that I'll just mention the name if people want to follow-up. It's um, an edited collection called Suicide and Social Justice, New Perspectives on the Politics of Suicide and Suicide Prevention. Um, And it was edited by Mark Button and Ian Marsh. And I think it came out uh, 2019, I believe. Um, I can send you the link. Um, But it actually is a series of chapters. I've got a chapter in at the end there on the vision of a more collective ethics uh, that we Mm -hmm. have to take a kind of collective accountability to create worlds worth living in. Um, And it's a little bit different from saying um, creating a life worth living in because that, again, individualizes that. Mm -hmm. But this 
creating worlds <laughs> that all oh. have the possibility for flourishing, right? And so that's a collective ah, project. And it's a stepping toward this future that we all have a stake in and that we're all in some ways not equally complicit, but complicit and there's no innocent place mm. to stand. And that's sort of the mm. theme of that article or that chapter in that book that I write about is um, that we, we have some work to do um, and that we need to contain and maintain a critical perspective on our own work in critical suicide studies so that we don't become complacent or think that we've now solved this problem because clearly mm -hmm. that's not the case um, and I think it's important to have a, a pluralistic approach that allows for multiple um, uh, approaches and paradigms to 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 flourish mm. yeah thank you thank so you. much that's I'm going to check out that book that sounds great and um, it was a it was a huge honor to have you this is a really invigorating um uh, enlivening discussion for me. So I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, me too. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolff and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. Capitalism Hits Home is a sort of broader over overhead view. It explores the way that capitalism shapes our personal lives, our psyches, our relationships, our families, and it looks particularly at the sea change in American personal life as all Americans, but the top 10 or 20 percent of Americans, have our security and our chance for a future become as precarious as it always was for minorities and families headed by women. It's not just in your head and capitalism hits home are definitely complimentary. And if listeners would like to check out Capitalism Hits Home, Harriet, where should they go to find it? Either on YouTube or Democracy at Work or on my own website, harrietfraud.com.